this morning, I would like for us to think about the race. Hebrews 12 is all about the race. It is given to us, of course, as a metaphor for the Christian life. The Christian life is compared to a race. The Apostle Paul is particularly fond of this metaphor. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. And then in Galatians 5, 7, Paul writing to the churches in Galatians says, You were running well. Who hindered you? In Philippians 2, 16, Paul writing to the church in Philippi says, Hold fast to the word of life. And then there's a pause. I hope I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The race. Hebrews 12 is all about the race. And if I was going to give a title to this message, it would simply be a layman's view of the race. We are encouraged to run the race. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Hebrews 11 gives us the hall of fame of the faithful who ran the race and were to follow their example, like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses. And then he begins chapter 12 here. Therefore, in view of those who have run the race and run it well, giving you many examples, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, like the King James Version better there than the ESV, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So here in Hebrews 12, we are encouraged to run the race. We are told there are many difficulties and obstacles and hindrances to running the race. Lay aside every weight. If you're going to run a race, you need to lay aside every weight. And I know athletes, when they train, they put weights on their ankles and wrists. But when they run the race, they take them off so they can run well. We're warned about a sin which so easily entangles us. How can you run a race if you're entangled? Think of somebody's feet tangled around ropes or bungee cords. Hard to run a race when you're all tangled up. We're told of the possibility of facing hostility in this race. As our Lord faced hostility, we're warned about growing weary and faint-hearted in the race. We're told that we're going to struggle against sin in the race. We're told that in this race we may experience divine chastisement. That God might discipline us. But he does it because he loves us and cares for us. And it's proof that we're his children when he disciplines us. So don't be surprised that in this race that sometimes God is chastising you. And you're experiencing divine chastisement. 
He warns us about drooping hands and weak knees. He tells us to strive for peace and holiness. Meaning it's not going to be easy, but you're going to have to strive for peace and holiness. He warns us about this root of bitterness and about those who fall short of the grace of God. And what does that mean? And then he warns us about sexual immorality in the race. And last, he tells us about a man who did not run the race well, Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Don't run like Esau. The race. How are we to think about this race? How are we to understand this idea of a race? It is certainly not to be considered a race as we commonly understand it. What we commonly understand as a race, that is where you have a track out there and a number of contestants and competitors competing with one another. That's what we think of, a racetrack out there and we've got these competitors and we're all racing. That's not the idea here. As Christians, we are not in competition with one another. We are all in this race together. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 has that race in mind. He says there's only one winner. We need to run so that we win. But not here in Hebrews 12. He's got a different race in mind here. In Hebrews 12, it's possible for all of us to win the race. In the other race, it's not possible. Somebody always loses. But here in 12, he's got this idea that we can all win. And even your winning doesn't cause me to lose. You can win and I can win. In fact, throughout the book of Hebrews, we're encouraged to help one another win the race. And it's even implied that we can't run the race very well without one another, that we need one another to run the race. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to just look at two Greek words that is translated race. And my hope and desire in looking at these two Greek words is just sort of to expand our view, our concept of what the race is all about and what it means when it talks about the race. The first Greek word is dramos. This word means the course. And probably this is the most comprehensive of the two words. The course, the route. Everything that is involved along the route, the obstacles, the bridges, the rivers, the creeks, the hills, the valleys, the smooth parts, the rough parts, the course, the agenda, the route. Several years ago, my daughter Amy signed up to run a half marathon along with Alyssa, Noah's wife, and they began training. Then the weekend came when we all drove down to Starve Rock and got a hotel and we drove around the, the, uh, the routes. And I'm looking at this route that they're going to be running the next day along the, the river there and the hills and the valleys. And I'm going, oh my goodness, to run 13 miles on these hills up and down. I thought I couldn't walk 13 miles and my daughter's going to run 13 miles. And so the next day, we, we were there at the beginning to cheer them on, and then we jumped in our car and drove down the route somewhere, and we would wait for them to come, and we'd cheer them on, and then we would jump in the car and move further down and cheer them on, and it was really fun and exciting to cheer them on as they ran the marathon, and she made it. 
Well, this is the idea here is the course, the route, and everything that is involved in the route. Now, turn in your Bibles to Acts 13, and we'll see it used here in Acts 13. In Acts 13, this is Paul's sermon, and he talks about John the Baptist. So look with me in Acts 13, verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, or as John was finishing his race, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. At the end of John's course, at the end of John's race, John wanted to make something perfectly clear. My life, my race, my course has not been been about myself, but has been about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I am not he, but there is one coming who is greater than me because he existed before me, and I am not worthy to untie his sandals. John wanted to make it clear my race, my course, has not been about me, but about Christ. Paul says that, does he not, in Philippians? For me to live is Christ. How often we forget that, don't we? How often do we live with that as a reminder that my life is all about Christ? That's the course. That's my race. What's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Question, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What's the purpose of man? Why are we here on this earth? What are we designed to do? Answer, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That life and joy and happiness is peace is found in a relationship with the living God. St. Augustine got it right when he said, Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our course, our race, should always be about Jesus Christ and never about ourselves. You probably have seen the bumper sticker. The one who wins with most toys wins, right? The guy who dies with all the toys and the most toys wins. Not what Jesus said. Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The race is not about toys. It's about your soul and your relationship to God. I've shared this story several times at Calvary. Forgive me for those who've already heard it. But I believe it was from Paul Tripp. And Paul knew this man personally, and he worked at a very expensive violin company out in Philadelphia. And this man was making um, very expensive bows for violins. And his mentor said to him one day, you have the ability and the gift to be one of the greatest bow makers 
that this century has ever known. And people will know you and your name three or four hundred years from now. But for you to make that point, you've got to dedicate yourself to this craft and become a master bowman. But you're going to require everything in order to do that. But people will be talking about you 300 years from now and about your bows that you made for violins. You know what the man said to his employer, his mentor? He said, I can't do that. Why? I got two sons at home. And in 100 years, they're going to be in one of two places. One, they'll be in heaven in the presence of God and join him throughout all eternity or they're going to be in hell eternally separated from God forever. So I cannot dedicate myself to that craft. I've got two sons to disciple. Our race is about Christ and our relationship to the living God. I read the story of a man who struggled. He came up hard. He started off, he was dirt poor. He worked real hard and he was successful and became a multimillionaire. Earned lots of money. Went through his middle age years. And then as he was getting into this early golden years, his wife was stricken with cancer. And then he spent millions of dollars building her dream house. So she could have her dream house before she died. Isn't that sad? Spent millions of dollars so his wife could have the dream house she always dreamed of while she was dying. The race isn't about toys and things. The race is about your relationship to Almighty God. And it's about Christ. Our course, our race is about Christ. I remember Dr. Dick Besanson preached here at Calvary. He was a professor at Judson for many years, uh, a godly man. I still remember five or six of his messages are etched in my mind. And one Sunday morning, he was preaching here at Calvary, and it happened to be the week that King Hussein, who had died in Jordan, and he said, you know what? I was sitting in my living room watching all the ceremony, all the pomp surrounding the death of King Hussein, all the flowers, all the accolades, people praising this man, what a great man he was. And he said, I sat there in my living room, and I thought one thing. Where is King Hussein now? Is he in, in the presence of the Lord in heaven? Or has he perished and is he eternally separated from God? What's his relationship to the living God? That's what he was thinking about. It's the race, the course. What's the direction of your race? Is it about Christ and him crucified? Is it about your relationship with the living God? The second Greek word for race is the word agon, A-G-O-N, from which we get agony. That's the word that's used here in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the agon, the race, that is set before us. It's the same word that is used when our Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says he was in great agony, and he was sweating drops of blood, and he was praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's the same word. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke 13, 24, when he said, strive to enter through the narrow door. This word is translated struggle. Twice it is translated conflict. One time it is translated a fight. 
Another time is translated contention. The race, the agon from which we get agony is a conflict, a fight, a struggle, a battle. John MacArthur said, a race is not a thing of passive luxury, but is demanding, something that is sometimes grueling and agonizing and requires our utmost of self-discipline, determination, and perseverance. This race that we are to run is a conflict. It is a battle. It is a fight. It is a struggle. Paul writes in Colossians 2.1, for I want you to know how great a struggle, a conflict, I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea. His conflict was for the souls of men. And if you're a born-again Christian and God has rescued you and you're redeemed and you are joined in salvation, you understand the conflict. You understand when you get on your knees and pray that God would save your son or your daughter or your aunt or your uncle or your mom or dad, you're in this conflict. You're pleading with God. God, in your sovereignty, draw them to yourself. Rescue them. Save them. That's the conflict that Paul talks about. It is a fight. It is a struggle to keep the faith. We're in this race, and everything is against us, and we got to keep fighting to hold on to the faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. These men and women who kept the faith throughout their life. The race is about keeping the faith. Oh, but pastor, you know, I, I believe in uh, once saved, always saved. Well, I do too. I believe in eternal security. But I also believe the Bible says that he who endures to the end will be saved. The evidence that you have true saving faith is that you endure to the end. If you're not enduring to the end and you give up and you quit, it may be that you don't have true saving faith. And this chapter is all about encouraging us, hold on to the faith. Why was Hebrews written? Here's what John Piper says about the book of Hebrews. Why did he write this letter? What was his motive for writing this letter? The book of Hebrews was written to a church that was getting old. Okay. This letter was written to a church that was getting old and was settling into the world and losing its wartime mentality and starting to drift through life without focus, without vigilance, without energy. Their hands were growing weak. Their knees were feeble. It was just easier to just meander through life. That's why Hebrews is written. We see this over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2.1 we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Guys, we're in danger of drifting away. We must pay closer attention, he says. Hebrews 2.3 How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're in danger of neglecting a great salvation. It's a glorious salvation, and we're in danger of neglecting it. What happens when you neglect your garden? The weeds take over. What happens when you neglect your marriage? We're in danger, he says, of neglecting so great a salvation. We were in a revival meeting one time, 
here at Calvary, and we're just all singing, Man of Sorrows, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And Brother Conrad Merle let out a shout that woke the dead. He yelled, Glory, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And the writer of Hebrews said, We're in danger of neglecting a great salvation here. Into the church had crept the disease of drifting and neglect. People were growing careless, spiritually lazy. Hebrews 3, take care, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from God. Hebrews 5, 12, though at this time I thought you should be teachers, you're in need of being taught the elementary principles of God. Do you remember in John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, faithful and Christian are traveling along and they come to this enchanted ground where it causes you to get sleepy and weary. And Hopeful says to Chris, he says, oh, I'm so sleepy. My eyes, I just can't barely keep them open. And Christian says, uh, we must keep going. He said, oh, I just feel so tired. Let's just lay down and go to sleep. And Christian said, no, don't you remember the shepherds warned us about the sleepy ground? We cannot fall asleep because if we fall asleep, the question is we may not ever wake up again. We must be diligent and alert and keep walking. Beware of the sleepy ground in this race. It's a conflict, a battle. And then I also want you to notice something here. It is a race that is set before us. Each of us has a particular race given to us by God, ordained by God. It is a particular course set before us by the Lord. You're not going to move it, you're not going to change it, and he's not going to modify it. God has a course that he has set for your life and my life. And your course and your race is not my race. And my race is not your race. They're similar, but you have a race that God has set before you, and I have a race that God has set before me. And they are set. They are ordained by God. Do you remember John 21? This is after the crucifixion, and, and uh, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Anybody want to go fishing with me? They say, yeah, so a few of them jump into the boat, and they go fishing. And they fish all night long. And about the break of day, they could just barely see a man on the shore, maybe 100 yards out. They couldn't recognize him. But he calls out, and he says, don't have any fish, do you? They said, no, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Hard for a fisherman to admit. Been fishing, got nothing. And he says, Cast the nets on the other side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast the nets on the other side of the boat and they catch a, cast, they catch a, uh, a net of fish and uh, so many so that the nets are nearly breaking. And one of them says, I've seen this before. It's the Lord. And when John, when John says it's the Lord, Peter dives in and swims to the shore and there the Lord has a charcoal fire and some fish ready and um, the whole chapter basically is about the restoring of Peter because he had denied the Lord three times. And there's this conversation that Peter and the Lord has. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He says it the third time. 
Peter's grieved. He said, Lord, you know my heart. You know me better than I do. I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And then Jesus goes on and says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you want. But when you grow old, someone else is going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go, and you're going to stretch out your arms, signifying by how he would die to glorify God. Folks, this is divine predestination. This is comfort that God has ordained a course for, for Peter. He says, you're going to be martyred for the faith, Peter. That's comfort, folks, to know that nothing comes into your life apart from divine permission. It's been ordained by God. The race that we run has been set by God. And Peter, yes, you're going to be martyred for me. And then Peter, he sees John and says, Hey, what about John? What about Tony? What about them? Are they going to be martyred? And he says, If I want John to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I've got a race for you, Peter. Don't worry about John. We're going to need perseverance in this race. This is the last point I'd like to look at. We're going to need perseverance in this race. That word perseverance is not in our text, but another word occurs in our text is the word endurance. The word endurance does not full the word endurance does not give full justice to the meaning here. The old King James translates it patience. If you have your Bibles, look again at Hebrews chapter 12. And let's notice this word endurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so closely entangles us, and let us run with what? Endurance or patience, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility. Verse 7, let us, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So that's the word that is used here. We are going to need endurance in this race. But this word endurance as I said, doesn't give full weight to what's really being said here. When we think about enduring, we're thinking about, man, we just got to grit our teeth and just sort of plow through life, and man, this stinks, and this is lousy, and we've got to struggle against this and this, and we just grit our teeth, and we just endure and put up with it. That's what, that's what we think about, endurance. And there's a lot of Christians that run that kind of race. But that's not what he has in mind here. What it really means is a cheerful undertaking. The word really means getting under, staying under a load, bearing up whatever is necessary for the desired result. We're going to endure. We've got this heavy load, but we're going to bear it joyfully because of what's necessary for the end result. And then what he said? That for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. So this race is about enduring cheerfully, and joyfully. You know, we do this all the time. We endure things for the joy set before us. You know how much work it takes to go fishing? My boys would wake up at four in the morning if Uncle Chang called and said, we're going fishing. 
And they would get the, the truck and the boat and hook it up and the gasoline and the fuel and the tackle box and the coolers and, and all their fishing poles. Why fishermen have, have 20 poles? I don't know. They got 20 poles and they're all going fishing at four in the morning. And you're tired just before you get to the river. <laughs> Why do they do it? Because they love to fish. It's not a job to them. It's not a chore to them. They love to fish. Sometimes I've thought about camping the same way. To me, camping is doing life with one arm. You, you, go, you go out there and you set up your tent and it's 95 degrees outside and you're thinking, why am I here? I've got an air-conditioned home. And then you get in this tent and you lay down and you get a rock in the middle of your back. And you say, why all of this work? We used to camp with our kids. It was a ton of work. Loading everything up and driving out the white pines. Why did we do it? Because we enjoyed it. We'd get out there and get that campfire going, and we'd just have a good time. Why will young men get up at 5.30 in the morning, go down to South Elgin High School, and they're on the football field at 7 a.m., and it's 90 degrees outside, full pads? Because they like football. They're waiting for the Friday night lights. They love the game. Well, how about marriage? Paul tells us that it's difficult. He advises that if you can remain single, remain single because there's difficulty in marriage. But why do we get married? Because we found somebody that we want to share our life with. We love her. She's special. She's precious. You don't sit down on your 33rd wedding anniversary and say, honey, we've endured. <laughs> you say, I've enjoyed life with you. I love you. I can't think of doing life without you. You're precious to me. And how about children? Is it easy to bring children into this world? No, it's, you're going to have to endure. But why do we keep doing it? Because we love children. They're a gift from God. They're worth every struggle you ever have. So we, we, we understand this enduring for the joy set before us. That's what he's talking about here. This race, yes, it's difficult. It's going to have trials and troubles, but it's to be accepted joyfully. And my last point. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, man, this is the last thing I needed to hear. Come to church, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm going through a very hard trial right now, and Pastor Scott says, you need to run the race. You got to keep the faith. I'm exhausted, I'm tired. My last point, you don't run the race alone. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, we're in this race, and it's difficult, but we're never alone. He's going to tell us in Hebrews 13, the Lord has promised, I will never leave you and never forsake you. And the Lord is my helper. You're not in the race alone. The Lord's in the race with us. And what does Jude say? The end of the book of Jude, chapter 24, to him who is able to keep you 
from falling and present you blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. He is able to keep you in the race. We're not in it alone. Praise God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, and I ask the praise team to come and lead us in a closing song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that comes to us in the book of Hebrews to run the race that has been set before us and to run it with joy, knowing that you are running with us. And Lord, we thank you that you are not, that you have not left us in this race alone, but you're there strengthening us and encouraging us in this race. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.